Welcome back. Thank you once again for hanging out with us. This is the one and only IT and the D show, your insight into the Detroit tech scene. I'm your host, Bob Waltonspiel, hanging out with co-host, producer extraordinaire, Randy Walker. Guest this week, Matt Van Italy. He's the CEO of SEMA Software, basically uh, all about code quality. So if you're in the coding business, if you're a developer, if you're in and around the business, you definitely this is definitely a show for you. Find us online, IT in the D. Com and do us a favor, give us a like on the socials, subscribe to us everywhere. Fine podcasts are sold. Don't forget, we just had a meetup last weekend, went great at um, uh, Yield Saloon. Why do I keep forgetting the name? Um, had a nice little, nice little turnout. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna go there for one more time and then we're gonna shift it up, maybe find somewhere with a patio in the summer. But you can find out where we're gonna be meetup.com slash itinity. And if you RSVP, you'll uh, get notified uh, when they're coming up. So hope to hope to meet you in person soon. Now that we're back to, are we back to normal, Randy? I don't know. I keep it's getting, sure. I keep getting these weird, like we're back to normal, then we're not, then we're back to normal, then we're not. Exactly. And and then Elon Musk goes and buys Twitter. So now the whole world Ugh. is chaos again, and dogs and cats living together. So um, <laughs> without without further ado, Matt, how you doing? Great, great, great to meet you finally, and uh, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Randy. I'm I'm doing awesome and really looking forward to talking with you guys. No, absolutely. So, like, I we started off the show earlier, you know, when we were kind of prepping, and I said, you know, Matt, I got bad news. I'm not a coder. And you're like, I'm not a coder either. And I'm like, okay, talk to me. And so, how did you get into founding a uh, a code quality company? Uh, pretty, uh, you know, I'm pretty interested in, in, I get, I always love a good origin story, no matter if it's comic books or IT companies. So Absolutely. yeah, how, how, how'd you get your start? Absolutely. Well, I did learn to code when I was five. So I had a little bit of experience from my parents who were both uh, programmers at IBM. Uh, and I like to say that the tech blood uh, runs deep. Uh, but I went off professionally and, and spent most of my time on the, the business and organizational side of technology. I worked uh, putting in ERPs and, and other large systems and governments and uh, software companies. I worked in school districts on using data, uh, which is a story for a whole, a whole other time, maybe. Uh, and really along the way, just fell in love with code quality. Uh, you know, I, I like thinking in analogies and uh, the organizations I worked for always had a, a system of record for the rest of the departments, thanks to code. But when it came to code, we were always using hand-waving, uh, you know, Salesforce is a system of record in code that helps you understand what's going on with sales and salespeople. And I didn't understand why we were always so qualitative uh, in understanding code and coders. And so set out to build SEMA. And along the way, uh, I realized the nuance of that. And I, I came up with an answer along that journey of, of why there's, there's so much hand-waving in code. So how did it used to be? I mean, I, I understand like back when we were all under waterfall and coders would code and then QA would kind of take it in big, huge, you know, buckets and then kind of everything would be happy at the end. And now that we're in agile, QA kind of works in tandem with coders, right? I guess, what do you, how do you look at it differently than, than how it's being done today? Sure. So I, I like to break it up into the, objective side of thinking about code quality, and then also the, the subjective or the qualitative. On the objective side, uh, as cloud processing costs have gone down, as technological sophistication is 
uh, increased on code metrics, you can actually learn an awful lot about the code quickly by, uh, by analyzing it, by running code against code. And so our first product, just to put it in context, it's sort of like a home inspection for code bases. Uh, a business intelligence layer, it sits on top of code and tells you how secure is it? How, what's the intellectual property status? What's been the process of the code over time? And thanks to cloud services, we're able to analyze billions of lines of code in, in days uh, and be able to come back with an, an assessment, like a home inspection. Uh, a frequent use case actually is mergers and acquisitions. When you're trying to understand what's going on uh, inside the code base, you want to know what you're buying uh, when you're buying a company with software assets. So that's on the... Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, so is every like QA person out there throwing their notebook in the air going, what am I going to do now? Um, I mean, you're not, you're, not, you're just a, I guess like a machine learning I, I, the way I'm thinking about you is when machine learning came out to like, look at log files for like SIM and for security event management and whatnot, are you kind of the, that, you know, and it didn't really take away the security analyst, but it let them do more productive things. Is that what you're kind of doing is you're kind of letting people be more productive and less reactive, uh, in those scenarios? So I'm going to use a little bit of an analogy. It probably is not the only time tonight I'll say code is a craft or CAC, as you made that joke earlier today. So kudos to you for that joke. It's going to be CAC from now on. CAC from now on. So one of the most fundamental things I've learned in, in building SEMA over the last five years is you have to understand the work of code, work of coders and the work of QA in the context of code is a craft. So what does that mean? It means the most important way to understand code quality is what an expert in that code uh, uh, believes it to be, an expert in that language, an expert in the domain, that the subjective wisdom matters more than, um, than anything a, a, a computer can advise, at least when it comes to day-by-day, minute-by-minute decisions on how to make the code better. So when so it help comes me, to- Let me understand this real quick, Matt. Like, you know, the way when you say code is a craft, I'm thinking like is an art form or like as a like I don't I'm trying to I'm trying to picture in my mind like can we take like a giant step back? No, I just want to get a yeah, better grasp around like what code is a craft is because first time hearing it, I, I'm I'm totally intrigued. Um, yeah, but yeah, let's take a big step back. I want to you know like what what do you mean by that? Sure. So I. I I may make some comparisons to pottery, uh, which uh, I think is also a craft, perhaps cl- close to an art as well. But I think I think pottery works as an, uh, as a comparison. Uh, so think about uh, there's a couple things that make uh, make something a craft. Um, you're y- using your own hands and will to carry it out. That's certainly a part of it. You can see the results of what you are building, of what you're creating, uh, and so there's real feedback uh, feedback on whether or not the code works, whether it runs, whether it achieves a goal. And probably the most important part for me about the code is craft is that it's inherently satisfying. Inherently meaning if you build, you create something that uh, that works, uh, that runs, it's, it's its own reward in a way that's really not true in uh, a, an assembly line, uh, in sales. I love sales, I do it for a living, it's super satisfying. Uh, but a part of what makes sales satisfying is that you actually close deals. It actually works. Coding, just working on hard problems is itself deeply rewarding. 
And to me, one of the clearest examples of, of Coda's craft is how much work is done uh, coding outside of work. Um, millions and millions of engineers contributing to open source uh, group projects or private projects. They do it because it it matters even when someone's not paying them, even if there's not some organizational goal. And, I, and that's so exciting to me. And I think the tooling around it, around coding, has to reflect that that's inherent craftiness. It's funny. When open source first came out, way back in when, when it first got coined, um, all I thought about was what a God-blessed nightmare this is going to be. Because for every 10 great tech slash coders, you're going to have one or two trolls. And they're going to, you know, code in a, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to be polite here, you know, like, a, you know, like what Disney does when they draw on the clouds, right? And they put like, you know, men genitalia and, you know, there's going to be coders like putting, you know, like just garbage in the code. But it's funny that it doesn't, I think there's so many better ones or good coders that they're, they're kind of squashing out, how, you know, being an open source advocate, how, how much is the troll effect? happen while you're looking at open source projects i'm just i'm dead curious because I, I always thought that that would just destroy the whole movement yeah and i uh i think about um just examples from uh social media where what 0.1 percent of the users generate i'm gonna get it slightly wrong but 34 percent of the trolling and one percent 80 percent of the totals uh right. it is extremely rare in open source i would I would not say it's zero, um, but it is. Um, I'll be honest. I've been working in this in years, and that is this is actually the first time I'm I'm now reflecting on it as a time that as an indication that it just it really frequently doesn't come up. Um, uh, I think there's something. I'm not gonna lie. I've, I'm not gonna lie. I've snuck in a potty word into Wikipedia entries occasionally. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> and they get removed. You're projecting, Bob. You're projecting yeah, about <laughs> how people might do. <laughs> yeah, you're right. No, but I, you know they get squashed within seconds. It's you know I'm like, oh my god, who's watching this? You know, so yeah, so that was the whole, you know, me not knowing coding or knowing, you know, not being a part of any of these things. Like, yeah, I was genuinely curious as to, to you know people trying to, you know, people want to see the world burn, right? I think we've learned that over the last couple of years. Um, but yeah, that was... So, oh, go ahead, Randy. Go ahead. So, Matt, how does your platform or technology kind of play into and uh, work with other existing technologies and processes that people might use, like code linting or uh, PR reviews, things like that? Sure. So, we have these two two products, both uh, uh, both involved with code quality and helping developers improve, but in, in radically different ways. The first is uh, this home inspection or a health check like tool. It's sort of a, a linter uh, on steroids. So folks uh, who don't know linters, they're kind of like a grammar check. Is the single line of the code, is it written well? Might it be misleading? Uh, might like there be... Kind of like Grammarly for your Exactly code. right. Exactly right. So Grammarly, uh, linters are like Grammarly. You can think about code. Uh, you want to get the individual sentences right, but you also have the paragraph structure and the essay structure and the book structure. And so our first tool incorporates linter-style results for the line level and then uh, line and architectural for code quality. Uh, and it's But it's always it's code running, um, testing for things, and then coming back and turning it, you know, translating it into results. That's, that's for this, um, this uh, health check tool. The second tool, which is about day-to-day -day use for developers, that's an assistant to, uh, to code reviews. Uh, and it, 
not to mess up the metaphor too much, it is a Chrome extension, not unlike how Grammarly gets installed. But what it does is it structures and systematizes the subjective feedback of a code reviewer. So if Randy, you're doing a review on uh, on my code, you might start typing in the code review process, hey, Matt, this code uh, needs a fix. It's not secure. Our tool makes it easier to give for you to insert examples so you're not searching the uh, Stack Overflow or wherever to go find it. So it puts good examples right at your fingertips. And then it creates a dashboard of the results. Before this, you might say it needs a fix, um, and you'd never read that again. This data is stored in pull requests, uh, pull request comments, code review comments. And what we've done, uh, thanks to our amazing, amazing, amazing engineering and, and product team, is turn that structured data into dashboards so you can understand your code better, ramp up new developers, uh, make an, a, a brag book or an accomplishment journal about what you've built with the code, all based on you, Randy, as a subjective expert, um, giving your opinion as opposed to what a linter would do. So you don't have to, I guess you don't have to tell me how the sausage is made, but I'm just looking at this objectively. Are you basically, are, are, this is a machine learning platform, correct? Uh, the first product has machine learning in it. Uh, they both have machine learning in it. That's that's a fair way to put it. No, I would just, uh, so I'm looking at this out, like you're basically baselining normal than looking for the weird in, in when you're looking for code. Is that is that really the crux when you, when you break it down or what, I guess is yeah, there- Yeah, I think that's a really good way. Um, you know, I'm a- <laughs> I'm a math nerd. I'm a nerd on every possible front. And so I try to be, um, if there's simple rules applied, I'd rather say, well, there's simple rules being applied, even they're being applied in a complicated way. But it's true. We also do have, besides some simple heuristics, machines learning involved. Um, you know, I'll tell you a story. It's not about machine learning, not that there's not machine learning in it. Um, one of the things we do for the first product um, is look for variance in the amount of activity. Um, uh, and that's a process measure about the health of a code base because it's not just are there bugs or not, is it secure or not, but is it consistent? Are they are developers building the product in a consistent way? And let me get the timing right. Um, last year, uh, timing matters on this. Last year, we did a, a home inspection, if you will, for a potential investor in, um, in who was buying a software company. And when we looked at the process chart, uh, they were doing uh, 10 units of work, 10 units of work, 10 units of work uh, in the beginning of 2020. And then in June, they started doing eight units of work. And it was you just saw this chart, 10, 10, 10, eight, really flat across. And I, so I absolutely love, and you're, Bob, you're right, looking for variance, looking for weirdness. That was really weird. Uh, and so because code is so contextual, and even if the computer can point out variance, you still need to hear the story because the story matters. We went back to the code owner, the folks who created this code, and said, looks like you had about a 20% drop uh, late spring, early summer. Uh, is that true? What happened? And they said, it is true. <laughs> we uh, we had a, a hit to our, we got punched in the face because of COVID, like so many other businesses around us. And we took Fridays off and had everyone do take a 20% you know, pay cut in this hard time. And thankfully, they were able to recover. They had a great exit. Uh, you can actually see in the data that variance. Um, and so, again, I love machine learning. It can do some crazy things, but parentheses, exponents, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, like can really, can get you really far even before you need to get to uh, machine learning to solve this. Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. I've never heard that. Oh, you don't know that yet. Parentheses, exponents, 
uh, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction. How, you How did I never hear that before? Math equations. No? No. Randy, have you heard it? Yeah. Yeah. I knew it. Yeah. Oh, and I was a damn math nerd, too. So, yeah, I'm shocked. Then again, though, you know, I'm the guy that hasn't seen The Godfather until I was like, what, 44, Randy? So, yeah, I'm, uh, for some reason, I missed a couple things here and there. Um, one of the things I really liked about what you do or what you, uh, you know, speaking of non-technical uh, people, um, is is kind of helping non-technical people understand code. And I'll be, I'll be honest with you, looking at, you know, code to me, even though I've been around it since I've been, what, 12 years old with a, you know, it looks like Japanese to me. It's just, there's, you know, there's really no rhyme or reason. Talk to me about this whole helping, you know, non-technical folks understand code or why do they need to understand code for one? Sure. Um, let's do why you need to understand it first. Um, the, if your organization is creating code, uh, you're, if you're not just using commercial off-the-shelf software, uh, including if you're working with consultancy partners, uh, which, of course, describes almost every organization on Earth in 2022, there's at least building some of their own code or having it commissioned, the better you can understand the code, uh, its quality, its direction, what's going on with engineers, uh, the better positioned you are to get great outcomes, uh, outcomes from the code, to help the coders have a great experience. There is a, there's always been a war for talent, but now there's a global war for talent and folks are competing now, everyone working from home. And so uh, it's, I wouldn't call it a competitive advantage. I'd compo- call it a competitive necessity to understand what's going on with your coders uh, to make sure they have the support uh, and the, the right environment to be successful. And so understanding code quality uh, and what coders' contributions is a huge part of that. The better the code quality, the uh, frankly, in almost all situations, the more fun it is to code. Um, and again, my world, uh, I had to take over financial models from somebody who did it in Excel and then left, and I couldn't start over. That I can say S U C K S, right? That's that's an okay you word. Totally on this can screen. say that on this show. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that sucks. Um, <clears> you'd much. It's much more fun to just start over and build your own logic. Code is like that, but times a billion, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of lines of code and you can't start over. And so having clean code, having high quality code uh, really helps for developer retention satisfaction. Um, it, it's, it's really a must have. So is it, um, has containerization changed the way you go about things? Because that, you know, that always made it easier to kind of, you know, edit it in prod and, you know, pull stuff out, push stuff in, you know, did it, did that, did that change the way you looked at things that, um, with, with your software company, or I guess, talk to me about the kind of, you know, cause that's sure. now it's kind of the normal. Um, yeah, for, um, we use it as part of our own, uh, software development practices. Uh, but the honest answer is it's been, it's been pretty consistent for both of our products. Uh, the first one, this, the, the health check, uh, relies on the version control history, and w- works on any version control system or systems because companies sometimes have more than one. Uh, and the second tool works in the code review process. Uh, and so for now only in GitHub. And so we, we rely on GitHub regardless of, uh, of containerization afterwards. Okay. So how, how do you tell the tool what to look for, for your particular coding standards and, 
and guidelines and things like that, you know, uh, functions start on a new line or, you know, we indent with tabs and not spaces or things like that. How do you actually configure the tool to, for your particular needs? Sure. So um, let's talk about the, the code, the health check, um, the first product first. Um, really, the short answer is we throw almost everything we can at the code, look for every kind of measure, uh, and then put those results back in context. So um, linter results that Randy was talking about earlier, there's probably thousands of different unique kinds, maybe even more than that, of individual warnings you might have about the code, things like tabs versus semicolons uh, or, um, you know, uh, compatibility with different versions of browsers and, and measures like that. For our first, uh, for the first tool in, a, in the health check in context, actually what we do is we sum up the instances of all of those uh, linter warnings. So all of the flags that come back, the the potential bad grammar, uh, using some air quotes there. And then we put that total count in context. And so if you're an early, if you're an early stage um, software company and you have a hundred of those kinds of warnings, you're doing exceptionally well because the only way that you'd only have a hundred warnings is if you have a linter tool in place and uh, it's, it's protecting the code uh, as you go. If you're a if you're a larger company, you might have thousands of warnings, even if you're using a linter, because it's just so much code you can only catch so much. But if you're not using a linter, you might have hundreds of thousands. And so our tool is kind of a a meta tool. If you think about it, it's counting. Well, if you have hundreds of thousands of linter warnings, you're clearly not using a linter tool at the moment. I and mean, we can see that from uh, comparison of co- code bases of your size and stage. And so we come back and say, looks like you're not using a linter. Is that true? Realistically, um, you know, that's a a pretty easy thing to fix compared to maybe security warnings or intellectual property risk. Um, But it's it's an easy fix after after the scan. Mm. So, Matt, you brought up code security a couple of times. And, you know, I come from an infrastructure security background. So when I hear code security, I haven't heard that I haven't heard that phrase thrown around that much. Uh, now, the way I think of it, it is that you're embedding private information or social numbers or or usernames and passwords. Does it go beyond that, or or am I looking at it properly? Those are great examples, and I'd say just like there's thousands of examples of linters, so grammar style uh, issues about code qual- about code quality. There's also the equivalent um, about security, hundreds or thousands of warnings, thousands, uh, I should say, uh, hard-coded passwords, encrypted um, encrypted keys in, in the database, cross-site scripting. Um, so thousands and thousands of these examples. M- not dissimilar from um, what we would do with linter results is not only do we find the individual warnings, but also count up to see if you have an ongoing security tool in place. Um if not, that's you know that's a must-have for for organizations in, in in 2022. And so, a frequent thing coming out of our one of our scans is to you know, not only help them remediate, hey, here are the some high security warnings we found, but going forward, you need to pick one of the great security vendors and uh, and actually be looking for security on a regular security warnings for on a regular basis. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Didn't something recently happen, Randy? Someone. Uh 
they left their they left like private confidential information in their code and they got ripped. Oh, I'm I'll sure. Have, yeah, I'll have to Google it after the show. But like, yeah, I totally I remember hearing about it. Then I'm like, that's when you brought it up. I'm like, all right, I want to double down on that because they're like, I'm like, what the hell could you possibly put in there? Um, like for me, it would you know, I haven't scanned enough code to, to understand whatever all the nuance and everything that goes into it. But like, you know, I I think it was like people they were like leaving social numbers or something. There was oh, absolutely some, some, and, uh, and customer ID data that was just plain plain text, you know. We've analyzed tens of billions of lines of code, company value worth over a trillion dollars, Some uh, many members of the Fortune 500, and in companies big and small, I can say with confidence, um, if <laughs> listen to your security officers, uh, everyone on this call, t- sit them down and, and listen. And if you do not have a code security scan uh, uh, running in your code, running either as part of the build process or at least on some regular basis, please do it. Because the cost, the cost, financial cost, and the cost of velocity, even if it makes things go slower in the roadmap, is much better than the alternative of um, of what could go wrong with with insecure code. Hmm. Interesting. Jumping around real quick, I, I saw you did a speaking engagement, kind of helping engineers kickstart their careers. Um, I'm just curious your take. I just uh, I was a, a guest panelist at PenguinCon this past weekend. Um, speaking with our old friend Nuri about, you know, uh, landing a job in tech. And it was funny how three panelists had three different outlooks, uh, but it wasn't, we, there wasn't a wrong answer, just different outlooks. You know, what, 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 I guess talked, what was the topics or what, what did you, uh, what did you hit on uh, when you're, you know, helping uh, engineers kickstart their careers? Sure. Um, I probably, I'll put it in two categories. One category is uh, contributing to open source. Uh, and the second category is tactically keeping track of um, keeping track of your learnings and your accomplishments. Uh, on open source, uh, I am a huge, huge, huge advocate of participating in open source at any stage in your career, but especially early on. Once you get to the basics of learning how to code, you learn some language, at least somewhat. Um, know, there's lots of ways to succeed, but man working in open source and contributing to an open source repository is such an accelerator uh, relative to many uh, academic programs. Uh, you're actually getting real feedback from others. So you're getting your code reviewed. You're being part of a real uh, engineering environment. The fact that it's open source versus private doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's real feedback. Uh, and it's so similar to the kind of work uh, you would do at an organization where you put in code, you find bugs, you fix it, you get feedback, you improve. Uh, and so folks can have one more thing. The, the other really nice thing for, especially for early t- tenure folks about starting an open source is that it's, there are very low barriers to entry and very low barriers to exit. So if you think you might enjoy working at, as part of a open source community, you can first start getting to know it just by observing. Uh, it's open source. You can literally see the discussions and see how the code is changing. Then you can dip your toe in and try to be helpful. If they treat you poorly, you can walk away. Uh, there's so many organizations who love and uh, and appreciate uh, open source volunteers. You're, you can use your services elsewhere at places that are more beginner friendly. And all of that doesn't have to show up on your resume. You're not talking to the HR person about, I now need to leave my internship. All of this can just happen uh, on the side, uh, outside of hours of whatever else you're working on. So I'm, I'm really a big fan of, of open source as a way to, uh, for engineers to get into, um, to, to jumpstart their careers. 
So that was my that was my big take. Is this is when I interviewed folks. I wanted to what's your home lab? What 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 are you building on Raspberry Pi? And then I, you know, I want you to show my engineer your GitHub and, and what projects are you working on or contributing to? And I thought to me that was like I wanted your your hobbies to be like your work because when you're at work, then it blends right. And I got completely. Someone told me, well, no, I look for people that have passion projects, not necessarily in tech. Because I, you know, I give it all here, and then they can go do, you know. And I said, well, no, I, I, I talked, to, I talked afterwards with them, and I was like, I was, uh, I appreciated you, kind of contradicting, but I go, I think it, I think it's the same thing. The pat, you know, as long as you have a passion project, it's just that you're doing, you know, I'm not just going home and sleeping and eating a pizza, you know what I mean? I just want to know that you got some fire in your belly. Um, I think that that's a big part of it, you know, because you know, I mean, my home lab, no, I don't have a home lab, right? I mean, granted, I'm on the business side. I'm, I've never been on the technical technical side, but for that, all for, you know, I, I like geek toys. You know, I like the plug and play ones. Those work great uh, for, you know, for me, but like, you know, I know Randy tinkers a little bit, you know, I would expect that, you know. Yeah, I think what I would say um it's a, it's, you know, the best career advice is, um, is very idiosyncratic. And now I'm going to give not idiosyncratic, but general advice. Um, if you're early in your career and you think you want to be a developer, spend as much time possible developing in as near real world circumstances as you possibly can. One, to uh, advance in the career that you think you want to be a part of. And second, to make sure that you want to be a part of it. Uh, and again, for, early stage folks who might be in college or early out, you can just get more at bats um, coding if you're um, if you're working on a passion project uh, or open source. The reason just open source relative to working on your own is you know someone else is looking over your code and that we all get better at things through feedback uh, and code reviews. Obviously, I'm obsessed with them, but they really are an amazing way to grow. Um, you don't. You don't have to... The thing you're doing for your life does not have to take 80 hours. Um, there are people who've uh, – that's a, that's a different choice. Um, but certainly early in your career, I would love it, uh, even if you're sure, um, even if you're sure you want to do coding, just to help advance your career is do more coding. Uh, maybe not the only thing you do, but certainly as a major, as a major activity because the more you learn um, – uh, just the better off the more the more you learn the better off your you'll be and your career will be just don't hashtag learn to code i think that's that we that that one's bad i think that, is I there think a someone joke behind gonna, it or something or <laughs> no the, that was um it was a big stink when all the miners when lost all their jobs and people were just like you know you should just learn to code so like when there was a big layoff going on everyone would just kind of like I melodramatically see, yeah. say learn to code so it became a lot of i think there was a lot of twitter bans for that one go figure i see um, well i've, but, I've yeah. heard that hashtags are out anyway my dear friend kunal who is much more expert on these ways says you shouldn't i shouldn't be using hashtags which is convenient because i wasn't using them in the first place uh, but yeah if you want to code <laughs> code if you don't want to code do what you love uh i'm mean, obviously that comes with uh come with a lot of privilege to be able to make those kinds of choices about your career Coding is not for everybody. Um, no, um, but man, if you like it, if you like the logic puzzles, if you like the trying to figure stuff out, man, uh, it is a delight. Uh, it is such potential opportunities. One of the things I've tried to always figure out is that not the who, but the the the, the makeup of the person that that is a quote unquote quarter, right? I, you know, I have three daughters. I tried to like 
teach them a little bit of everything and see what they gravitate towards and let them choose that path. Right. But like, I remember my, you know, my oldest daughter, I got her into Python class and she was like, it walked out of it. Just like, this is hot garbage. I never want to see I never want to see one line of code again for the rest of my life. And, you know, and I had tutored from people from Microsoft and, you know, this was like, this wasn't just a half-assed course, you know, I would, this was all in. So I'm like, but then you see people that are like mid-career transition and they just take to it like, like flies to a lot, you know, to honey. And like, it just, what's the makeup of that person versus like me, I hated GUI and, you know, I hated interfaces. I hated router interfaces. I hated code, you know, even though I did it out of necessity in times of my life, you know, I loathed it. And I'm just wondering the makeup of some, is it engineering mindset versus Randy wants to yell at me right now. I, I was just going to say, to be fair, I feel the same way about, about Python, but that's because I'm a <laughs> C style developer. So, um, all right. See, should now that's a, that's a good question though. What do you, should you start? Like, I've always heard everyone starting in C, you know, in C plus C sharp. Um, but then I've heard a lot of people diving in, just doing Java right from the get. Um, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, what, what, yeah, there what, are, what, is, um, what is the good, what is the best place to start? Well, first I, you know, I definitely commend your, your parenting approach. Uh, you can put opportunities in front of your children and give them a good faith chance to try it. And some things stick and some things don't. And I thought you were going to ask me if I could, if I could tell the kind of person um, who might be more likely to like code, uh, to want to code I was, or not. I was and, leaning towards that, but that was a rotten yeah. question. So I kind of changed it a bit. Cause it, yeah, no. And I, and I, and thank you. I, cause I can think of just the diversity of personalities. It's not extroverts or introverts. It's just, it's not people who like logic. Cause you can like logic and code. You can like logic and law. There's logic and people. Um, you know, in 2022, looking ahead for the next five years uh, or 10 years, the prospect for careers in coding uh, are very, very, very strong. Very, very, very strong. So if you are at a place where you are thinking you're code curious, um, it's a really nice, uh, it has really good prospects. I would feel really good about making that kind of investment. But the first step is to just see if you like it. Um, I am not, um, uh, I am not particular about what language you start with. Um, I would say the goal is to find one, maybe do a little experimentation, but then find one to stick with and get from beginner to advanced beginner and then advanced beginner to, uh, to intermediate, uh, because there's, you're, you're sort of learning how to learn a programming language and, and the further in you go in one, the better, and probably, I don't, I don't know. I mean, probably COBOL is not a great choice. I press, no offense to anybody who's listening who's a COBOL programmer. But other than that... Um, Depends what I year would, it is. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I would solve for access to great teachers. Uh, in any subject, great teachers win the day. So if there is a program or a course where uh, there is great... Um, where you're going to get great, uh, great guides, uh, regardless of the language, I would go with that. And on top of that, you know, I, I heard a lot this weekend of, I only know, and from our meetup last week, like, I only know one language, period. Like, should, you know, should you, and then I hear other, you know, like, well, this person knows 10. Well, that, to me, I always treated them as, like, language. Like, do you know French, Spanish, German, English, right? Is, is it that intricate? Should you know multiple? Or is it okay just walking saying, I am, I'm only .NET, period? Yeah, Um 
So our first product, um, the, this health check tool, we actually look at the code. I'm going to get this right. Look at the code and look at the language composition uh, and then give back an organizational view on the languages that are used. And I'm going to start this conversation, this, this uh, conversation without knowing where it ends, but I'm feeling hopefully optimistic. One question is how many engineers on earth are there still writing in that language? A second or, you know, continue to write. A second is, is the language still maintained? So are people, you know, obviously continue to keep the language up to date. Third is how much code is there? And then fourth is, is it popular? And so we actually, from an organization's perspective, um, hey, you have COBOL is, there's not a lot of developers. Uh, it's not popular. It's not currently maintained, uh, but there's a ton of code uh, in the world on it. Uh, that's, we'd consider that a risky code. We'd consider that a risky language to buy a company about because it could be hard to find developers. Now let's flip it. If I'm a developer and I'm in working in language X, um, it is possible, but unlikely that you're going to be able to make spend your entire career in one language. So my spider sense says um, uh, I'm at least experiment with figuring out a second language just as a as a backup move. Although .NET, C Sharp, Java, JavaScript would be perfectly fine. Uh, but it depends a little bit on what you'd like to do. If you um, uh, if your sector has a lot of code in this language, uh, it's probably a safe bet. If you would like to get into another field, nothing's stopping you from learning that other language. And I know I'm a broken record, experimenting with open source before you before you take that plunge. No, I got it. No, it totally makes sense. You had a good ending to that. You were selling yourself short. Um, so I'm looking at this thing like our impact. You've evaluated over $160 billion in investment value over 2022. What like what does that mean? I'm looking at that sure. going. Wait, you know, I understand business outcomes and all that, but evaluated over 161 billion in investment value. That's that's a new phrase for me. What what's up? What's uh what's that all about? Sure. So that relates to our our first product, the code based solutions or the health check. Uh, let's say that um, private equity firm X um, decides to buy a company that has software and they spend. $250 million to buy that company. We would say in that moment, we have um, we have evaluated uh, company code worth $250 million. And so when you sum up all of the deals that we have worked on, uh, it would, uh, deals, uh, it gets to $160 billion, which uh, would be the size, I think, of the second largest private equity firm. Uh, and then when you count uh, private companies who aren't, um, who aren't being sold uh, and their market valuations uh, it's, it's over a trillion dollars worth of value. So that's the, where the home inspection line comes in. Cause you're looking for the leaky pipes and the bad roof and the, you know, exactly right. Exactly right. I know now see now I knew nothing but more. And now I'm like, aha, there's the light bulb. I am. Uh, yeah, I'm in. So, all right, good, good. Randy, what else you got? You got the perplexed look on your face. Just listening intently. Um, <laughs> so, oh, what's I, there's next? Uh, yeah, I was gonna say, what's next? You're always evolving. You're always, you know, looking for. Do you, you know, if you care to share, if you don't, that you, know, you can plead the fifth. But uh, you know, what's next on the horizon? What's what's the next big thing? Sure. Well, we're calling it code names Soylent Green. I don't know if you 
Oh, come on, you guys get that joke. Come on. Oh, no. That's a very inauspicious name. Oh, made of this is it's be, people. Go horribly wrong. Oh, of, of course we get that. <laughs> it's people to serve man. Uh, yes. So we are, uh, it's a cookbook. We are um, super exciting stuff on both sides. Um, on the, the home inspection tool, um, adding, uh, going deeper and deeper into uh, intellectual property risk. Um I won't put your listeners uh, to sleep, but not only can code have risk from the quality and the security of it, uh, but there's risk generated if you're using third-party code the wrong way or you're using the wrong kind of third-party code. Just because it's available uh, in GitHub or a version control system doesn't mean you're legally allowed to use it. There are, there are legal restrictions. And so we're making it easier for our clients to find legal risks and other risks associated with third-party code. Uh, on the um, code review tool, the tool for developers, uh, we're making it easier to build uh, accomplishment journals. Uh, I'm really excited about that. A code is craft CAC, um, a way that a potter shows off um, what they have learned and what they are is they put together a collection of their pots uh, and show their growth and show their progression. They don't have stats on, well, I spent 15 minutes on pot one and then 14 minutes on pot two, right? That's not, that's not the right metaphor. And so we're building a tool for developers to tell their own story about what they've learned and what they've contributed to. Oh, I'm so excited about that as a way to help people get credit for what they've built to bust up the super lame process of interviewing technologists by like having them do BS uh, coding exercises on the spot, which is totally crazy. So helping on the second product is helping developers show off what they know and tell that story in a way that makes sense to coders and non-coders. Um, I, I'm incredibly excited about it. I, I was just happy you didn't say NFT code. I was, I was waiting for that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just totally kidding. It was, it was a huge conversation this weekend. It's stuck in my head. I don't know why it popped in just right now. Um, I got to get your take because this, me and Randy argued about it uh, this past weekend. But what was your, did you, have you seen the Batman yet? The, it's on HBO Max. So I figure everybody's seen it at this point. Oh, I, I, it's, I haven't yet. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, the opening sequence of um, uh, Heath Ledger uh, Joker and the first 10 minutes of the bank scene is among the best 10 minutes of cinema yep. of all kinds. So it's a super high bar, um, but I've heard incredibly good things and it's, it is definitely on my list. See now, I absolutely loved it. I, I put it number two. You know, Michael Keaton one kind of, you know, Mike, that's that's probably a number three if I'm going to rank them today. Randy thinks okay. it was hot garbage and probably puts it at the bottom. And I was trying to, like, figure out why. And it, it reminded me of a few movies from when I was younger that Randy was still, you know, in diapers. Um, and I think that's why. Because, like, I was, it was like, oh, I remember. I remember. It was member berries for me from, like, six different <laughs> movies from, like, the no early 90s. Um no, I loved every minute of it because it was just like it, you know, didn't it was a very slow opener, and I there wasn't it wasn't really drawing me in. I like think I was an hour and a half in, and I was still no, not feeling. I it. think they did a poor job of, of explaining that it was Batman Year Two. It, it was based on the comics, you know, which was called Year Two. I think they could have done a better job than that. I had to watch Screen Crush after I watched it just to get like get all the nuance, 
and then they were talking about the comic series Batman Year Two, and I'm like, all right, then now, I, and, and then I had to watch it again. You know, that's the bad, worst part about screen crushes. You have to watch everything twice, first time blank, and then you know, then you see everything, then you watch it again. You know, with expanded eyes. Um, I don't know. I thought it was brilliant. So. I don't care what Randy thinks. He thinks everything stinks. Randy is unpersuaded. For the audience listening at home, Randy is unpersuaded. <laughs> I see no, that. I just I, didn't follow it. It wasn't keeping my attention. And then uh, the audio was bad, too. I thought, like, Were you everybody in the was whispering. Or at home? At home. Yeah, because you bought a TV everybody at Walmart. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Matt, we can, find you on, we can find you online. So it's Matt. It's three words. Matt Van Italy, I.E. Double L I E, just like the country, pronounced like the country, spelt a little bit different, but you can find them on LinkedIn and then also at SEMA Software, S E M A Software.com. I'll definitely put links and uh, everything in the show notes. But Matt, it's honestly, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a been a fun conversation. You know, learned a lot. I, I always love it when people can explain stuff that I never, uh, look, different viewpoints in the world. So, no, I sincerely appreciate uh, the content and the candor. And I wish you nothing but the best. Randy, Bob, this was so fun. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We're going to wrap things up on behalf of Bob and Randy. Do us all a favor. Drink up your drinks. Get your phone numbers. You don't got to go home. You just got to get the hell out of here. See you next week. Drive careful. Beat it.